This is Dr Shelley Kemp, a Senior Academic Developer in the Academy at the University of Liverpool. You're listening to the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. Well, Shelley, we are really pleased um, to have you on our podcast um, today. It's, it's lovely to have you here. Um, the topic of inclusive practice is something really close to my heart, and it's something that over the course of my um, career I've got to know more about and actually um, developed quite a passion about in terms of thinking about how we embed that at a local level um, in my personal practice, but also um, at the institutions that we're working at. So I just wondered if we could start by you telling us a little bit about your professional background um, and also why inclusive practice is so important to you. Okay, Um, so basically, like you, I've learned a lot more about inclusive practice um, over more recent years. When I first started out as a lecturer, um, it probably wasn't at the forefront of my mind and it probably wasn't talked about that much at that point in HE, it wasn't kind of in the media and you know diversity was talked about but not to the it's kind of embedded in some of the policies and things that we kind of see now. Um, so like many other new lecturers I went on a PG cert and that was kind of my first introduction to thinking about the diversity of students and actually if I'm honest it filled me with fear Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was supposed to do with knowing there were gaps and I didn't really know um, what I should be doing on how I should be approaching it Um, I, I kind of received the message at that point that I should be like targeting particular individuals that might need more support than others Um, I didn't know about kind of inclusive design and thinking about the benefits for all students of making some changes. Um, So it was much, much later that I probably got a better understanding of what inclusive practice meant. Um, So started out as a psychology lecturer and then I ended up kind of transitioning into being a senior academic developer. And at my previous institution, I developed um, a programme of workshops for staff to look at what inclusive practice was so exploring it and through that it really helped me also it's quite beneficial for me to learn more about what it is um so in terms of personally why it's important to me so obviously that's professionally kind of how it's become important to me personally um now i've got that kind of hat on where i can look back and reflect upon my own education experience and i can see you know as first generation first um, generation to go to university um, and i can see the differences between myself and some of my peers in terms of their parents knew how the kind of education system worked um and that's just one kind of factor that can influence our approach to learning so it's just one thing but inclusive practice obviously about lots of other things as well um, so even just reflecting on that and going to do, through my PhD, I could see differences. I didn't kind of think it at the time, but now I look back and could see why I felt different or why I maybe had challenges compared to other people. So I guess there's always going to be a personal element in how we approach this, but um, you know, it's professional and personal kind of motivations that I really care about my students and I want them to all do really well. Brilliant. So can I just pick up on one thing that you said there? Um, Because I have to say, um, up until about seven or eight years ago, I hadn't even come across this concept of universal design. Um, And then I started working at um, a previous institution, Liverpool Hope um, University, and they have a department, um, Disability and Education, led by 
Associate Professor Claire Penkus. And they completely opened my eyes to this concept of universal design. So transitioning away from, um, particularly to, to do with disability, a medical model and thinking about a social model. How can we change society to be inclusive? Mm. So what changes can we make um, to the curriculum so that it's inclusive of all rather than saying, okay, you've got this label, we need to change it for you. Is that something that you you were just talking then about universal design? Is that yes. kind of what you've been thinking about as well? Yeah, definitely. And I think when... So I, I don't know if this has changed more recently. And because of the position I'm in, I see it one way. But I think from my experience, when people hear about inclusive practice and I ask them, well, what, what do you do to be inclusive? They automatically jump on the things they do for disabled students. Um, so that kind of seems to be at the forefront of people's minds. But yes, universal design is about all students benefiting and actually thinking about, and I kind of, if I need to get someone on board with thinking about inclusive practice, I think about the time investment um, that they have when they're trying to make all these different individual adjustments for particular students that come forward and actually thinking, well, if they could make tweaks that then helped all students, that would mean they'd get less of those kind of ad hoc or reasonable adjustments they needed to make. So you've just been talking there about all students um, and possibly when we think about inclusive practice I think it's easy to automatically think about students with disabilities um, and that's, that's clearly not the case but how would you define um, inclusive practice? Yeah so you're right I do believe it's about all students and I guess I think of it in terms of the diversity. So starting off with the fact that we haven't just got this dichotomy of disabled students and non-disabled students. We have students with completely different diverse backgrounds, culture, um, mm. social experiences, educational experiences. Um, and so there's many different dimensions on, upon what a student can be um, different in the way that they approach their studies. So I'm thinking about that diversity when I think about all students, um, so not just disabled and, and non-disabled. And then in terms of what I think inclusive practices to suit those people, it's about looking at the access to higher education and, the, and that could be access as in being able to get enrolled onto a, a programme in higher education, but also could be access to the resources and facilities and all of those things as well so access is not just that kind of just getting into university to start with it's a lot more than that but also participation in higher education and again that could be you know avoiding boundaries and, and barriers to um, being able to interact with other people within the classroom environment to be able to approach and talk to lecturer um, lecturers and, um, and many other different kind of forms of participation so yes, it's about all students and it's about the diversity that we have within our classroom. It's also about intersectionality. So it's not just, you know, you don't characterise yourself based on one characteristic. It's not yeah. just that you're um, a male or a female or, you know, you're from a, a good socioeconomic background or, or not. You know, it's about lots of these different things and how all of those things can interact and affect the way that you approach learning and the way that you feel supported within the education environment. So if we want to um, be inclusive of all people, is it even helpful to use categories, do you think? So, yeah, you're right. So there's been this shift, obviously, with um, TEF and with the Office for Students and Access and Participation Plans to look at the data 
But, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with that because we do need to at least look at what's going on to be able to understand some of this. And it's a very complicated picture, but to understand some of this picture and to monitor and see how we can kind of reduce gaps and improve the trends for all people in higher education. So we do need to look at the data. And unfortunately, in order to do that, you have to categorise by some means. So, however, I think from a, from a practitioner's point of view, being aware of those big trends and big gaps and issues around um, the kind of student population, um, but uh, but then thinking they are people within your environment and how can you make sure they're all getting the best out of that? So it's not just looking at students and categorising them because you won't know a lot of the things you can't see. Yeah. Um, so you're approaching it in a lot more kind of personal way, really. Brilliant. That's great. Okay, interesting. So um, some of the work that I've been looking at um, talks about this concept of kind of diversity gains, kind of building on what you're saying, that acknowledging within a classroom will have a whole range of um, students, um, all from diverse backgrounds, all with diverse needs. And um, there's some people who've been doing some work on this. Bauman and Murray did some work in terms of um, diversity gain, in terms of hearing loss and actually... Um, uh, what people with hearing loss can bring to the table as a positive. Um, <clears throat> and then Garland Thompson has built on this as well in terms of thinking about disability as well and actually how people, disabled people, um, bring so much to the experience. And if I think about that from my own teaching background, it's when I've engaged with a whole range of people with a whole range of different experiences and backgrounds um, that that's when there's a really unique teaching experience taking place that people can can bring to the table. Um, I just wondered what you thought about that in terms of valuing diversity rather than saying, okay, this is a problem and it's something that the university needs to be aware of and something that we need to respond to. Actually, are celebrating diversity and um, what do you think that can bring to the university and to the student experience? Yeah, this is a really important issue, and I think you're right. This and I, I yeah, should have mentioned this. This idea that diversity is enriching and it should enrich our classrooms. So there's different ways to kind of look at this. Um, like you say, that it's um, a challenge to be able to do that, and I think it takes a lot of thought and consideration and good um, expertise and teaching practice to be able to do this and do this well. Um, however, if we think about our students, we don't want to give them a uniform experience or give them what they've already got we want to give them something more and who better to do that than to have the students bring that in and us as facilitators to to allow everyone to contribute as well and I kind of think that's an important part of it that contribution from everyone why shouldn't someone like you mentioned someone with hearing loss be able to bring some of their experiences to help not only, um, and I guess it's about um, society, to help society and break down some of those um, disadvantages or sort of discrimination that we see within society because people um, maybe aren't aware of different things but if we bring that into the education environment people will go away from that with much more awareness about diversity and much more sensitivity towards others um, and then when they go into employment they'll take all those kind of combination of views and be able to make that a much more um, open and accessible employment um, experience as well. One of the um, quotes that I read um, when I was preparing for this was that diversity can be reframed as a rich resource for the enhancement of the cultural and material aspects of all human experiences. And I really like that. I think that kind of summarises what we're trying to say in terms of diversity gain. 
um, rather than this kind of deficit discourse that we've heard in the past. So I just wondered if we could kind of summarise, what do we think um, uh, positioning diversity as a gain rather than a deficit could mean for the university um, and for the student and staff experience as well? Okay, great. So you're touching upon kind of the social model of disability, but then taking that further, and it's not just about the social model of disability, but kind of the social model for all diversity, which I think is a really important and interesting concept. Um, so firstly, just to touch upon that, though, because I think it's an important thing. So what I'm, what I would be arguing in terms of inclusive practice <clears throat> is that we try to be inclusive of all people. However, it doesn't mean that we completely eradicate the need for an individual needs-based approach where needed. So it's not about one over the other. It's not that we're saying completely eradicate helping individuals where they're needed. Sometimes that will still need to be the case, Great, but yeah. it's about designing out where possible any of those things like I talked about earlier, barriers to access and barriers to participation in higher education where possible. So we're not saying completely kind of eradicate any need for and because that would be very 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 challenging and we're just asking for small changes as well so in terms of what it means for the university um well and for staff and students i think at a staff level this is about this is about a reflective process about how you approach your teaching and how you create um to remove those barriers and create opportunities for all students um, to access and participate in, in higher education. And so you don't have to start by completely redesigning your whole um, modules or programs, but you just have to think about when you're approaching the next teaching session that you're doing, um, thinking about what, who, are the, who are my students and what's the diversity within my classroom? What are the issues I've been approached by students for in the past? And is there anything I can do to to anticipate those needs beforehand so this is about anticipation so just to put you on the spot can you give me some examples of that so if i'm um a tutor going into um, a tutorial and you're right um there are some students who've come to me and they're, they're struggling what kind of things are we talking about here yeah okay so i'll take um so that's a very good example so if you have a tutorial let's say it's um you've got a small group tutorial so you've got four or five students and you're you're going to ask them some questions you're going to try and get some dialogue going which is a really good example of um getting contribution from your different students and it's a really good teaching technique to kind of break it down in small groups and allow yourself to be more approachable so um in terms of that if the student so mental health is obviously a big issue and this is inclusive practice can help to deal with some of that as well so the students some students might be very very anxious to speak out in front of others even if it's not three or four hundred people in a big lecture even in that small environment don't underestimate that some students can have like severe social anxiety and find that very challenging so some things we can do to help those students but also all students um is providing them with at least an outline of what is going to be discussed. So if they are very anxious, they can prepare in some way beforehand, even providing some of the kind of topics for conversation or even setting some preparation work so they can feel empowered um, in their learning and, and prepared for that session. So they're just like some simple things we can do. And then if you think of it as a lecture, just, and I know that, that most people are aware of this now, making available materials before the lecture so this would help people who have things like dyslexia or um, processing um, cognitive kind of um, challenges where they can go and look at th through things beforehand and then become 
just at least knowing what the conversation is going to be about. So, and some students, and, and that's just um, kind of an easy thing for us to do. And, and say you are working till really late the night before, but you've done this lecture the previous year or in a previous kind of cohort, it's okay to just give an outline of what's going to be discussed so that it's just about that kind of helping students be feel and prepared and kind of feel confident. So there are little things that you can do in terms of that. And then when you're in a tutorial, it's being aware, again, who are your students? And not just ignoring students that don't contribute at all, because I remember when I first started, I'd be in kind of small group teaching and, and I would not want to put pressure on people to speak because I was like, oh, well, this English is a, um, a second language to them, so it'd be unfair for me to kind of pick on them or anything. And I don't think, I don't agree with picking on students at all, that's not what I'm saying, but they should still feel invited to participate just like any other students. And and some kind of cultural differences mean that they might not actually answer a question unless they're directly asked. So you've got to be aware of all these, all these things and it is complicated and it is hard and it's about being sensitive, really it is. It's about being personable and building good relationships with your students so that they don't feel threatened because remember about the power dynamics between us and students, we might not be aware of that power dynamic. However, if you go back and remember your very first experience going to an undergraduate teaching session, I'm sure you might have viewed your lecturers quite kind of powerful and, and mm. <laughs> scary to approach and all those things. So just remembering that and you trying to make them feel at ease is, is really important. So they're just little things and they're hard to sort of quantify in terms yep. of things you can do, but feel confident that we're not asking you to do like a big checklist of things before you go and teach. We're asking you to think about it and evaluate how it's going as it's going along. And yeah. afterwards, if it yeah. doesn't work out, have a think, why did it work? What else could I try? Well, you've mentioned a few things there that are really interesting. So things like um, sort of the, the understanding of, of, the, of your audience, and you've talked about um, dyslexia, uh, mental health, and so on and so forth. So those are some of the challenges that a lecturer will have, surely. That, that, that's one of the biggest challenges. It must be about the, sort of the, the breadth of things that, that they'll find in the room. What are, what are some of the other challenges that um, an academic or a member of professional services will have when they're, when they're trying, you know, desperately trying hard to, to make sure that the practice is inclusive? So I think Morgan and Houghton, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in 2011, they did like a HEA guide on inclusive practice. And I really like their dimensional typology of the things, the kind of differences in, in how people approach their learning. So they talk about educational background. Okay, so with this, I think the easy kind of example to give is someone who goes through a traditional sort of A-level route and, and they go straight into university will have a completely different educational experience and preparation to doing coursework and assessment at university compared to someone who went through a BTEC route, for example, who maybe did more coursework based and then had a lot more um, feedback and chances to kind of um, develop coursework. So they've had completely different experiences and that will affect how they're prepared. One activity I used to do um, when I was kind of doing some of um, my academic development work was to show people what a GCSE maths paper looked like um, and I got and the staff got really excited about this and they would kind of um, try and do the paper and be like oh okay so you have to remember some of our students only have a GCSE maths and they only had to get their C so they might have only done a foundation level um, GCSE and I don't know if it might have changed now but just trying to kind of hopefully that kind of is understood by people and so 
then if you imagine that's their last experience of doing maths and then they might have done some A-levels, they might have done a B-tech or they might have done other things, but they might not have explicitly been studying maths in that time. They might come to university and they might not be doing maths, but they might be doing a subject where maths is in it in some way, like mm-hmm. psychology or sociology or um, biology. And so then what's their next assessment that involves some kind of maths? In? And then if you look at the disparity between those two things, it could be huge. And so we're thinking about educational background in terms of those preparedness for that first assessment or preparedness and going forward. So that's just one example. I think that's a really good example. So in your classroom in the first year, you will have people who have their GCSE maths C grade and you'll have people who've done an A-level maths Mm. um, and got the top grade. How do we ensure universal design when there's so much difference, whether it's educational background, which is what you're talking about, or cultural background? Mm. Um, There's, you know, so many different categories here. How do we ensure universal design? Well, this is a a really good question. So you're right, educational, cultural, dispositional, so kind of self-esteem. There's lots of different things and, and, and circumstantial as well. So there's all these different things. And because it's... uh, dimensional and there's intersectionality around this and it's very complicated therefore the approach isn't just one thing that we do it's got to be multifaceted so some of the things for universal design will think about assessments obviously that's like really important and that's kind of where we see challenges so when students um, are being assessed they tend to kind of um, we could see the differences between the students and so thinking about how do we prepare them for those assessments when are those assessments positioned when they first arrive at university and thinking about formative tasks and activities and opportunities for feedback so that they can develop and prepare towards it so you're kind of embedding into your teaching and into your feedback processes the the opportunities to reduce that gap Mm-hmm. So that some students might not need to, you know, they might be able to do those activities really easily. And, and that gives them feedback that they're at the right level as well. So that's that's beneficial. So that's kind of universal design. But those who maybe can self-assess or you can assess where they're at, you can then provide the right opportunities or guide them in the right way to be able to bridge that gap and to develop towards that first bit of assessment or first output that they're going to do, which will kind of... So does that make sense? Yeah, it so, does, yeah. so it's kind of thinking about this in these different um, ways. There's lots of different things we can do. So that's just one thing, like thinking about feedback and assessment and formative assessment and formative feedback and that. But also just the teaching and the teaching support and in the classroom and thinking, okay, how do we check that understanding as we're going along? How do, do What assumptions are we making? And checking our own assumptions. So when we go and deliver a lecture and you say, right, you're, don't try to be careful about using language such as, all right, you're, you all should know this, or, you know, um, obviously you understand this, and obviously this is easy. Like, don't, like, that might be okay for some students who are like, yeah, yeah, this is easy. But for some students, it could really put them off and it can make them think, oh, this isn't the right environment for me. And transition's an, an issue in, and retention's an issue in higher education. And some of these things could trigger those people to think, well, this isn't for me. I, I shouldn't be here. I yeah. should go and get a job. I remember having those thoughts in A level. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. inclusive practices are throughout the whole education yeah. kind of system. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. Do you think that the the lecturer or or the professional service member staff? Do you think they need? It sounds like they need a, a high degree of self awareness, um, but also 
they need to be very self-aware of others. So it sounds like um, emotional intelligence comes into play. Yeah, probably. I don't know if I'm if that's okay. That that would be my view, but I think it is really important. I think good teachers should show that awareness and should be critically reflective Mm. and I think we talk about inclusive practice now but any type of teaching enhancement that we'll talk about at any point or you'll talk about at any point needs critical reflection because if we can't evaluate what we're doing and how it's going and how it's being received by the students and you know how we could improve things then you know how will we ever do anything different and and make things better yeah so I think you're right. So that kind of emotional intelligence, I think, is important. Um, but we can learn to do that, you know, oh, to yeah. a degree. You know, okay, people yeah. can, can, you know, you might just... We have assumptions. We all do have assumptions. And just sometimes, like, check in with those assumptions, I guess. And, and, and if, you, if you find that hard, get involved in peer observation and, and go and observe other people and think, oh, why did they do that differently? Ask them, why did you do that differently? Or I saw you did that differently to how I do it. Why did you do it that way? Have those conversations because that might help you to critically reflect upon your own practice or look at other people's practice and bring different things in. Or if you feel comfortable, ask someone to observe you and and to give you that constructive kind of view of how they think it's going. Because we can look at student feedback, but it's good having someone in the same boat as us to kind of check in with us occasionally and get that kind of peer-to-peer um, support because we do need to support each other with this. It's not, I think there's a really good quote that from uh, Marina in 2017. So it is an unfinished process and a belief system that poses a challenge to any situation of exclusion. So it's an unfinished process. We're not asking you, right, tick these boxes, become inclusive practitioners. It's about that continuation of evaluation of what we do. Brilliant. You, you started to hint at it there in terms of student feedback and that's something I'm really, really interested in is we've talked a lot about um, what we can do to enhance our practice and we can support each other as colleagues. We can think about how this um, impacts professional services and academics. But for me, student voice is crucial in all this, that actually our students are such a rich resource in terms of telling us and helping us to understand um, the diverse nature of our student body. So how can we um, explore that further? How can we use student voice to develop um, our practice? This is, yeah, this is really good. So there's kind of informal things we can do, which again comes back to that um, relational aspect of being inclusive. And that's just um, enabling students to feel they can approach you. And that, that again, partly personality, partly emotional intelligence, but just being approachable. So in that then think about your behavior think about are you smiling are you are you taking the time to answer their questions or are you appearing rushed and stressed i mean we're all very busy we've got very busy lives we've got lots of priorities competing against each other but when a student comes to you it might have taken a lot for them to come and knock on your door or come and speak to you so just take a step back and 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 breathe and Mm. just make sure you're there in that moment for that student Mm. and and listen to what they've got to say and whilst that might be one student approaching you with one issue that there's about hundreds of other students that might not have felt they could come and talk to you about it and might be just dealing with it alone so that approachability really important then look at student feedback obviously you've got formal routes for feedback but you can ask students you can say how how was that for you how did you find that what could i do differently there's no reason why we can't just have these conversations students want you to be 
reflecting on your practice they want you to try be trying they don't want to think you're kind of complacent and just think that you're doing you know they, they want to see that you care so just by asking them you know how did that go is there anything I could do differently next time that will really help in terms of students feeling that you're listening to them so that's really positive um, and then um, students involved in the kind of design of, of programs and modules could could be another route and I know that kind of students as as peers in that process is, is really important and I know we're seeing a shift towards more of that as well so it, it is again about making students feel they can talk to you and, mm. and listening to what they've got to say absolutely I have to say like one of the highlights of my career um, was um, on results day for for final undergrad final year undergraduate students and a student came into my office floods of tears um, and she got a first and through the tears, it came out that actually she'd always been told that she was stupid. Um, and actually, she arrived at university, um, explored the reasons why she was struggling to learn, um, got some support in terms of uh, quite severe dyslexia. And because people had taken the time from professional services, the academics, to listen to her, to work with her in terms of how she best learned and how she would engage with her education, um, she'd absolutely flown and you know she'd got that first which she'd watch is what she'd been aiming at um, and for me that's what it's all about is it wasn't about us doing stuff to her but it's actually valuing her as an individual who has come from a diverse background and saying you know what can we do to support you in your learning um, and that was really special for me yeah. um, but it takes time doesn't it and energy yeah. and going the extra mile and and I think that's a really that's a really nice story about how you can really help with that kind of growth mindset of students within the higher education environment um, and also those individual stories then reflecting back on okay this is one student now what can I do to address this issue which might actually like I said earlier a, a affect lots of students and that's again coming back to that kind of idea of inclusive practices for all so little things we can do in that if a student does email us and ask us a question like I don't really understand the assessment or I don't really understand what I've got to do prepare to prepare for this class don't just reply necessarily to that one student and think job done think okay this student's asked me so obviously need to help them understand but maybe this is showing some kind of area where I need to help uh, fill in some information for all students so thinking about putting that on kind of virtual learning environment forums and things so that they're all benefiting from that because you will get some students that are more likely to come and ask you questions than others and that again you could be advantaging them and then building big kind of building a bigger gap between those and other students which is exactly what we don't want to do brilliant okay thanks Shelley that's been really interesting um, and plenty for us to think about there in terms of our own personal practice what we like to do is to end each podcast um, with three or four kind of take home tips for the listeners um, that we could then um, kind of help us to further reflect um, on what you've talked about and think about our own personal practice. So can you give us kind of three or four tips um, that we could take away with us? Yes, of course. So one could be find out who your students are. So this could be looking at the data and then seeing, okay, well, there's gaps here or there's areas for development here. But it also is how find out who your students are when you have that opportunity to talk to them. Be personable, find out who they are, make them feel that they can approach you. That's where you're going to learn the information. So that's number one, find out who your students are. And, and, and part of that is finding out how they do as well. Um, be aware of your own assumptions. So 
uh, I haven't mentioned it today, but obviously um, implicit bias and unconscious bias is, is, a, is an area for people to kind of educate themselves on if they're in um, higher education. And so being aware of that and then te- checking in with your assumptions as you go along. And then um, being anticipatory of what problems could occur and trying to um, design them out at, at some stage in, in, when you're preparing to teach or to assess or to support students. So there's three um, and hopefully they will be useful to you. And, and remembering it's an unfinished process. So coming back to that point, this is a continual um, evaluation of what we're doing and continually trying to improve and develop. Like I said, we're not just going to achieve the end goal. We're working towards it all the time. And I feel okay about that. Take small steps because, you know, that's better than not doing anything at all and being too fearful to change anything. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much, Shelley. Thanks for coming in. Okay, well, it was great to hear from Shelley there. Um, I mean, something that I, I took from that and, and to be fair, you know, I didn't know a lot about the topic before the conversation, being somebody who, who sort of designs and develops mainly digital or online learning resources. Um, but something I really took from that was the, was the use of emotional intelligence or, or some form of self-awareness that a lecturer really does need to ensure that they can, they can really follow through on that, in, on that inclusive practice. I think you're right. I, th- I also really liked the conversation that we had with Shelley and, and it's also coming up in the literature now in terms of this challenge um, to a deficit-based discourse and actually kind of reframing diversity as a rich resource, as diversity gain. And I, I really like the direction that the conversation is taking around this subject of looking for um, how we can um, celebrate and also how we can um develop our engagement with a, a diverse um, understanding of what it is to be a student today so lots for us to think about um, and lots of challenge there as well mm. if you want to take your thinking on this further um, what we have done is we've put together a list of resources that you might want to have a little look at um, you can go to liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy and on there there's a link to lots of different resources to do with uh, inclusive practice to do with diversity gain to do with um, disability um, specifically so you might want to have a little look at those as they'll complement your thinking on that let us know what you're thinking about this let us know if you enjoyed um, the conversation you can tweet us at live uni academy Yeah, and if you can please rate and review in iTunes and subscribe via Spotify and Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from.